Hi, I'm Sean Murray, and this is The Conversation, where we take an alternative look at political events and current affairs through an Irish lens. On this show, we hope to pick, probe, investigate, and uncover the stories that you want to hear. We go where mainstream won't go. This week, we look at British state collusion in Ireland. How far did it reach, and why? After all these years, is the British government still attempting to deny justice to victims? But before we do, let's take a quick overview on this week's topic. In February 1989, the word collusion was catapulted onto the international stage with the killing of human rights lawyer Pat Finucane. The assassination caused widespread international revulsion following allegations of British state involvement into the death. However, allegations of state involvement into civilian killings was nothing new. Whether this involved direct collusion with police officers and British Army personnel going back to the 1970s, such as a series of Glen Allen killings where over 120 civilians were murdered, or security service involvement into the importation of hundreds of weapons in 1987, leading to many scores of murders. It is difficult to ascertain how many innocents met their deaths due to collusion. Since the signing of the Good Friday Agreement in 1998, leading to many years of matter of peace, fresh evidence of state collusion have been found by leading human rights groups around Ireland. This has led to calls for public inquiries, inquests and civil cases against the British government. However, a culture of silence has prevailed. The redacting of documents, suspicious fires and general obfuscation has seen the government attempting to cover up its role in the past. 25 years after relative peace, new battlefields have emerged where the fight for truth and justice now dominates the political landscape. As always, we're joined by our resident co-presenter Michelle Gildernew. Michelle is the current MP for Fermanagh South Tyrone. She has served in the Northern Ireland Assembly as a former Minister for Agriculture and Rural Development and chairperson of the Health Committee, amongst other things. Michelle has been a Sinn Féin activist since her teens and has been elected almost continuously since 1998. And today's guest is author and human rights advocate Anne Cadwallader. Anne has been working with families for many years and has recently retired from a position at the Pat Finucane Centre, a human rights organisation that advocates on behalf of victims in cases of political violence. Anne Cadwallader, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Michelle. Anne, you state boldly in your bio that you're a transplant to Ireland. But before, before we go into that, can you tell me a bit about your early career? Well, for 35 years, I worked as a journalist, first starting off in Britain. And then I came to Ireland in 1981 during the hunger strikes. I worked for the BBC up here in Belfast. And then I also went and worked for the BBC in Dublin. I worked for the Irish press down south as well. And then I came back up north in the 90s and covered the peace process leading up to the Good Friday Agreement. Um, for radio mainly, but also for various other freelance out outlets, such as Reuters and the Christian Science Monitor and the Irish Echo New York. And then I quit journalism and uh, went to work for the Pat Finucane Centre as an advocate on behalf of victims of the conflict and their families who were looking out for more information. Tell us a bit, Anne, about the Pat Finucane Centre. You know, when did you start working and remind our viewers why the centre is named after, after Pat? Well, the, the PFC, Pat Finucane Centre, started off life, uh, kind of arose out of the Bloody Sunday Trust. 
um, a group of people who were involved in trying to get truth about what happened on Bloody Sunday, but then they expanded and looked at other areas as well. And they decided to call the organization the PFC, the Pat Finucane Center, because like Pat Finucane, uh, the PFC believes that uh, one way of trying to get to the truth is through legal action, through forcing those who were involved in violence, and we believe that all parties to the conflict were involved in violence wrongly, um, to, to fess up to what they did and to get hard evidence because what families of people who died during the conflict want is not what the dogs in the street say. They want hard evidence that they can believe in. Um, so that's what we're involved in. And we, we like Pat Finucane, we looked at every possible legal angle that we could use, uh, every possible process, in, inquests, the police ombudsman service, uh, judicial reviews, all the different ways that families have to try and get to the truth of what happened to their loved ones. And um, like Pat Finucane, who did that for his clients as well. So Juan, you spent many years working with victims. Is there any, and I know this will be a, a hard question to answer, is there any period or, or any particular victim that, that really stands out for you? Well, I suppose it, it is hard because you get to know people very well because you're talking to them about a traumatic event in their lives, their lives that's completely changed everything, and you get to know people very well. But if I had to pick one out, I think the death of an unborn child is particularly awful. And there was a family in County Tyrone, um, and the three adults were killed in the bombing. And when the body of the woman was investigated at hospital, they, the pathologist discovered that she had been pregnant, but there was no sign of the baby. So they had to send back to the, to the devastated cottage that the three people had been in when the bomb went off to find the body of the baby in the ruins. And, and that family has never recovered, understandably, from that experience. And the pain and the awful trauma is is, uh, is visible when you talk to any of the family members right the way down to the third, fourth generation after that bombing. Um, it, and it was a purely sectarian bombing. Um, the loyalists who were responsible just didn't want a Catholic family living and growing in that area, an area they considered to be their land, their territory, and they didn't want a young Catholic family living there, so they just wiped them out. I know that family personally and, and it's one of those harrowing moments in our history that you can never ever forget about um, and I've known many of the people that, that you'll have known too. I would have known Eilish McInnesby McCabe very well. I know you work closely with Eilish but names like um, Owen Boyle, Francie McCahey um, are, are names that I just grew up knowing and knowing what had happened to them. And your book, Lethal Allies, um, blew the lid on the Glenan gang story. Will you talk a wee bit about that as well, please? Well, firstly, the names that you've just mentioned would not be known well because their families are very private. They mightn't want to become public and to campaign publicly. We did the campaigning for them. So people wouldn't have heard the, these, these people's names. They died one by one in sectarian bombings and shootings in the murder triangle, so-called. Um, and um, it was the Pat Finucane Centre that first started to draw evidence 
and to draw links between all these different attacks and bombings in that very rural area where there was very sparse population, but there was a very high murder rate. Mm. And we couldn't, you know, we were asked questions about why so many people were killed in this sparsely populated rural area in Mid-Ulster. And the answers came back slowly, slowly, bit by bit, we pieced together a huge jigsaw. And the result of that was that I was asked to write the book, Lethal Allies. We were very lucky that we got any information at all. Um, it was thanks to the Dublin Monaghan Bombings Inquiry, and it was also thanks to an organization at the time called the Historical Inquiries Team. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was because we went into the National Archives, because we did a lot of investigating, real traditional hard investigations that journalists weren't um, prepared or willing to do, or rather media organizations rather than journalists. I think a lot of journalists would like to do more investigating than they're able to. But anyhow, we did that in the investigation and it, we produced uh, the book, Lethal Allies, that I was lucky enough to be asked to write. And uh, it then became a film, of course, that Sean here, Sean Murray here, was, was produced called Unquiet Graves. And I think that has changed the conversation in Ireland about collusion, because I think before we did this, this long piece of work, this long project, uh, people talked about alleged collusion. And uh, people said it was a Republican propaganda, that there was no collusion between the security forces and loyalists. But I think now that conversation has changed. I think that people in Ireland, if they're fair-minded, will accept that there was collusion between loyalists and the state. There are still many, many unanswered questions, but it's no longer alleged collusion. I think people accept now that it happened um, and it should be investigated further. Let's, let's take it for the audience. Let's take a look at the film. The plan that was decided on was to shoot up a school in Belize. So, when you say shoot up a school, do you mean kill the primary school children in the school? Children, teachers, yes. And they knew that bomb was there for days. So, the state committed the murder of Eddie and that's it. Murdered. And place was putting our childers to bed. There must be a cohesive gang working in the murder triangle carrying out these murders. The RUC had a 100% failure rate in convicting anyone for these murders. There were a significant number of British intelligence agents from within the RUC and the UDR who were involved directly in these killings. Well, it's incomprehensible to me that the RUC, to quite a senior level, were aware that a bombing was being carried out. Knowing who was responsible, they still did nothing about it. For me, that is the biggest question that needs to be answered. In summing up and in sentencing these police officers, the Lord Chief Justice went so far as to excuse their behavior by saying, and I quote, they were trying to rid the land of pestilence. Now, that was the kind of language that uh, Nazis used about Jews.
And you had mentioned Dan on Quiet Graves, and it was, it was always a pleasure to work with you and people like Margaret Irwin and and and, and Paul uh, O'Connor, etc. How was Unquiet Graves different from the, the literary approach that you're normally used to? Well, uh, Lethal Allies, and I, say, I admit this myself, is a very hard book to read. It's hard to read because, first of all, it's about the most appalling and sickening series of murders, sectarian murders, real people whose lives were taken from them, totally unnecessarily because of sheer sectarian hatred. So it was hard for that reason. It's also hard because it's very dense. In order to piece together the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle, I had to draw links between guns, between perpetrators. So everything has to, had to be cross-referenced and footnoted and sourced because that was the value of the book, that it was hard evidence, it wasn't speculation. Um, but when it came to the film, we could tell the story in a much more easily assimilated way. Um, Unless you're a, a, a bit of a geek or a nerd or whatever, it's hard to read Lethal Eyes. Some people did read it cover to cover and then went back and read it again. Other people put it away in a drawer. It was too, too difficult to read. But, but Unquiet Graves, the film that was based on Lethal Allies, was the ordinary, the ordinary person could read it. It was, if you, if you want, it was an introduction to what went on and it told the story of the people involved and how we got to find, got to the truth, such as we did. So it was, it was a completely different um, project. Um, and there were some really marvelous interviews in that, that uh, people still find, even if they've watched it three or four times, I certainly find, and I've watched it dozens of times, I still find myself gasping at some of the interviews that you managed to get when you did, when you did the, when you produced the film. You're still tuned into The Conversation, your weekly alternative probe of political events and current affairs from Ireland. I'm joined by my co-host, Michelle Gildernew, alongside our special guest, human rights advocate, Anne Cadwallader. Um, you've did forensic research into your preparation for Lethal Allies, so you've been in military archives and you've, you've really investigated all of that. Where's, what, how do you feel about the latest proposals by the British government at attempting to legislate immunity? for British soldiers. There are no words to describe how I feel about this government's so-called reconciliation and legacy bill. Having worked with the families who lost, who suffered most during the conflict, it is, indis it is appalling to me that, they, that, that London would consider ending any prospect of those families getting justice through the courts. It is unique in my experience in the world, and certainly unique for any liberal so-called Western democracy, to decide to pull the curtain over the truth and to prevent families who have worked for so long and prayed for so long to get to the truth of what happened to them, that the, that the government who's supposed to represent them, whose only claim to legitimacy is to abide by the rule of law, which is the same for everyone, what are they trying to hide? Mm -hmm. What are they so afraid of in the truth? And as for calling it reconciliation, it's the opposite of reconciliation. This will increase the length of time it will take for this community, these communities in Ireland, to reconcile to each other because it will hide the truth and that can never be good to hide the truth. Now, Anne, we've seen the, the latest attempts uh, with this legislation that the British government is trying to push through. 
which would in effect end uh, civil cases and inquests which have been successful uh, against the British government or have been successful on behalf of families. If that goes through, where do you see things going for the families now? Well, if the legislation does go through, it'll mean that we can no longer advocate on behalf of our families to try and get them truth through inquests and all the rest of the legal processes. So what we thought we'd do was bring a, a panel of international human rights experts to Ireland to give them all the information we can possibly get and ask them to go away and consider what we call state impunity. That is the state uniquely amongst all the parties to the conflict demanding immunity for itself and its agents. So we have brought that panel of, of human rights advocates to Ireland. We are working with them and they will. We will do it ourselves as far as we are able. Obviously, it won't be as, as de in depth and forensic and as with as much hard evidence as we would get if we had the option of going through the courts, going through inquests, going through police ombudsman's inquiries. It will not be as good as that, but we are not going to let it sit there. We're doing what we can and we will we'll leave no stone unturned to try and find as much truth as we possibly can for the families. Because as I said earlier, what is London trying to hide? It would make you wonder just how bad the truth is when they are doing their best to bury it. But um, when do we expect to see that work come into well, completion? It's, or? it's happening right now. Okay. It's happening right now. Um, I don't know when the full report will be out because these are all, all the people who are involved in the tribunal are um, human rights advocates uh, in their own field. They're from uh, South America, they're from Europe, they're from the Middle East. And, they're, and, they're, and, and from Norway as well. And they're coming, they're coming and we're pre presenting them with as much information as we can. And they're going off to do their own investigations as well. And we should have a report next year sometime. Um, the last time I was speaking to you were telling me that, uh, and I suppose it's, it's, it's perfect now that we've discussed that you've just recently retired from the Pat Flugan Centre. You were, you were writing a book. I mean, have we had any progress in that? Do you want to speak about that? Well, I've written, I've written two books that have been f based on fact, um, and which were journalistic enterprises. One was Lethal Allies that we've discussed. Another was a, a book about a school in North Belfast where loyalists blockaded and attacked the children and their parents going to the school. It was a uniquely horrible um, episode. Somehow or other, I do seem to be drawn to uniquely horrible episodes. But yes, I am working on something else. I don't want to say too much about it. But um, yes, I am working working on a novel at the moment. And it, it's, it's examining uh, cases of shoot to kill. So something different from what I've done up to now. And have you planned out the next few years now on what, apart from, apart from writing this book? What, 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 are we going to see more of you? Well, you can't walk away. When you've been involved for the last 14 years, as I have, in this particular investigation into the so-called Glen Ann gang, you can't just get up and walk away from that, can't walk away from the families or from your colleagues. So no, I'm not disappearing off the scene altogether. And in any case, there are lengthy um, inquiries currently going on, underway by the police ombudsman and also by the former Chief Constable of Bedfordshire in England, John Boucher. So there are two inquiries that have been going on now for five years and more, and they will eventually reach their fruition unless the British government stops them in mid-track, which we hope doesn't happen, but I certainly will be around for those reports. Uh, and they're due out, let's, let's hope they're due out next year. So Anne, you've got to know people 
talking about the most horrific time of their lives and um, that must garner a very unique and special relationship. I know you'll always be welcome in Tyrone um, after the experience you've had there when you were researching Lethal Allies and you're held in very high esteem in my community but how do you do you keep in touch with people? How does that work itself out afterwards? Yeah. You can't just walk away from an experience. You can't just walk away from families like that. I will always carry with me their experience. And they, I hope, will always know that there were people who truly cared for them, whose only thought was to help them. We had no other agenda other than to give people some sort of peace of mind and justice we had that's the only agenda we ever had we did we didn't we don't befriend people and we don't offer therapy or counseling we only really look for hard evidence but inevitably when you're looking for that hard evidence inevitably when you turn up on someone's doorstep as i have done with a report in your hand that shows them for the first time that their loved one their mother in one case their mother was murdered with the full knowledge and support of the state that was paid to protect them and that their lives were, were damaged irreparably by the most awful murders that were carried out not by loyalists on their own, that was to be expected, but of people such as police officers and soldiers whose duty, whose paid duty, whose duty of honour was to protect life, not take it in the way that they did. And the cover-up ever since, over decades. When you turn up on people's doors and you have to tell them what has been discovered in the files, in the archives, that cannot be controverted, is incontrovertible evidence of such appalling acts, then they that's something you never forget. Mm. And it's something they will never forget. That one afternoon, somebody turned up on their door and told them the truth now, it's hard for them to hear the truth, but it's even worse. It's, it's absolutely dehumanizing to say, oh, you can't tell people the truth because the truth is so appalling that it will hurt them. Yes, it will hurt them, but every human individual has a right to know what happened to their loved ones. Hard and all as that is, they have that right, yeah. and it should never be taken from them, which is what the state is trying to do now. Mm -hmm. And I want to thank you for coming in today. Uh, I think on behalf of me and everyone here at The Conversation, we want to wish you all the best in, in your retirement and you're, you're welcome to come in here and see us anytime. Thank you very much, Sean. This week, we take a look at the policy of internment without trial, a policy enacted by the British government in August 1971, and what can retrospectively be assessed as a major miscalculation by Britain, leading to many innocent men and women spending long sentences behind bars without trial what have we learned about this dark period in our history? In the early hours of the 9th of August 1971, the Stormont Unionist government introduced internment without trial. Codenamed Operation Demetrius, it involved mass British Army arrests of more than 340 people from Catholic and nationalist areas across the north of Ireland. The then Unionist leader, Brian Faulkner, said Operation Demetrius would smash the IRA. The faulty intelligence used to make the arrests was provided by RUC Special Branch and MI5 leading to many arrests of individuals who had no connection to the IRA. Many of those detained experienced brutality and torture at the hands of their captors. 
with some spending several years behind bars without trial. Most unionists supported the move at the time, although the Reverend Ian Paisley opposed it because he was concerned some loyalists would be interned. The policy of internment caused widespread violence across the north of Ireland. Over August 9th and 10th, 23 people died, including the 11 who died in the Ballamurphy Massacre in West Belfast. The swoops caused huge Catholic and nationalist alienation from the state and also served as a recruitment boost for the IRA, just as Bloody Sunday did six months later in Derry. It is estimated from August 9th, 1971, until the end of that year, that close to 150 people were killed, with many hundreds injured. The following year, almost 500 people were killed, the worst year of the conflict. As a result of the violence following from internment, the Irish government set up five camps to accommodate families of internees and refugees from the trouble. Almost 2,000 people were interned up until its ending in December 1975. 52 years on, and with the fog of war still lingering in the distance, what have we now learned about this dark period in our history? And that does it for another week. We'd love for you to join the conversation by sharing the link to today's programme to help us grow our audience across all our social media platforms. I'd like to thank our special guest, Anne Cadwallader, and my co-host, Michelle Gildenew. In the meantime, the conversation will be back next week with more investigations and analysis. I'm Sean Murray. Bye for now.